Last week, for those of you who weren't here, I did a series. Uh, uh, I looked at the historical aspects of God's judgment. What is it that brought him to that breaking point? I use that term uh, very loosely. I know that God didn't have a break snapping point where he just can't handle it anymore. Um, but what brings him to that where he finally just says enough and judges? And we looked historically through those evidences, those occasions when God judged uh, people. And we looked at the nations. Uh, we included Egypt with uh, the work of, um, Mos- uh, work of God through Moses and uh, what led to that. We looked also at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. We looked at the flood through Noah in that time period. We also looked at Assyria and uh, what happened with the Assyrians. Uh, we then also looked at Israel and her judgment, what finally brought God to bring it upon her, and then Judah. So we correlated each of these acts of judgment of God with the sins that were committed, and we came up with this kind of list. Uh, I'm just going to read through them. I'm not going to elaborate extensively on any of it, um, but here's what we found. The flood, God talked about the evil intents, the wickedness, the uh, violence that was there. In Sodom and Gomorrah, we found homosexuality. We found an outcry against uh, them from some source. Some source was crying against the sin being committed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, In Egypt, we found infanticide being practiced by Pharaoh of not remembering the covenant with Joseph um, and uh, enslaving God's people. With Israel, we uh, see her engaged in idolatry and syncretism, uh, being like the nations and seeking to worship God and others. With Assyria, we found their boasting against God, and God silenced that boast. We found with Judah, um, first of all, we saw the acts of sin of Manasseh, the evilest king uh, on record there in Judah, who was uh, reported as uh, offering his own son, uh, making him go through the fire, referring to human sacrifice. Um, but uh, it was still some time later, several uh, kings later, before we come into Jeremiah's ministry, where it essentially says in Jeremiah 23, the problem is that you want to follow the dictates of your own evil heart all the day long. You want to do what you want instead of what I've commanded. So we looked through this list of sin and we separated out two groups from the other four. So we had the flood world, we had Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, and Assyria as the nations. What, when does God fed up with the nations and brings it to judgment? And then we looked at Israel and Judah as what is it among God's people that moves God finally to judgment? We looked at both of these because when we come to the end times, I believe we will come to a pinnacle of sin that will involve both God's people, which at this point is the church, and the nations. And so we're going to look for all of this uh, present. And um, obviously, sin is nothing new on the planet. And you might say, well, how does this fit into the sign of the end times? Um, But we're going to see it rise up. And again, it's not its presence that is the issue. It's it's promotion. It's uh, acceptance. Uh, sin has been around, but it has been well identified by government after government at, and tried, sought to be controlled. Um, when you find God's judgment upon these entities, 
We find them uh, promoting it, uh, encouraging it, and participating in it freely and openly. But we've come to the New Testament now. That was an Old Testament study. We're going to look now at the New Testament. Oh, there is one other principle that we sought last week. We found that when God reached the fed up point, (laughs) that wasn't the day of judgment. That was the day of proclamation of judgment. That there came that breaking point, if you will, where God says, enough, I am not going to tolerate this anymore. And in our minds, we say, well, if we're not going to, if he's not going to tolerate it anymore, then he's going to judge it tomorrow. But we didn't find that the case. Instead, what he sent was a messenger with that message. I am fed up with this. I will not tolerate it. I'm going to judge you. Um, that messenger's ministry and his the predecessors, the ones that come after him, um, from our perspective, took an awful long time. Noah took a hundred years to build that boat and all the while preaching. And as we go through each of these examples, with the exception of Assyria and the boasting against God and and that judgment came very quickly, but really it was in the works for some time because Assyria had already done horrific things to Israel, the northern tribes, and that had been going on for some time, not quite as long as the others. Um, And so there is some brevity there, but it was also probably the lesser judgment out of all of these in terms of their nation because it only struck their army and not their whole people. Um, But when we look through these, what we found is that here's the sin, and God takes sometimes up to 100 years, generally between 80 and 100 years. And so Manasseh commits this horrific act. God remembers that even Josiah, the best king in in Judah's history, can't undo it. Um, And so once Josiah's off the scene, God remembers Manasseh's sin and says, I haven't forgotten that I said I was going to you know, judge all of Judah for that sin. Manasseh reigns 55 years, Ammon 2 years, Josiah 31 years, Jehoahaz 3 months, and Jehoiakim 11 years, and we have about 80 years between the beginning of Manasseh's reign and when Judah is going to fall to Babylon. Completely fall, and Jehoiakim is in there. So we have approximately 80 years there. And so we find that God's timetable is a little bit different than ours. We think, well, as soon as I'm at that point, I'm going to judge this now. Um, no, God's pattern is to say, I'm going to let that go for a generation, maybe even a little bit longer, and I'm going to send prophets, I'm going to send my word of warning to them, and with the hope that they'll repent, but ultimately when it comes down to it, it's going to happen um, because of this sin here. Uh, They can delay it, but they are not going to avoid it entirely because this sin was never repented of. So when we come to the New Testament and we start looking at this, we're going to spend tonight talking about the church. We're going to spend next week talking about the nations. And we're going to categorize these sins. Um, And like I said, the end times is, I think, a unique period of time when you have these both coming together at the same time, uh, the sin of the nations filling up God's wrath and the sin of God's people filling up God's justice, God's judgment. I don't want to use God's wrath, although I think it's applicable because many who are in the church are not of the church. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So let's go uh, to the New Testament and let's start working our way through these end times passages referring to the church and what's going on there. Let's begin 
by looking at Second Thessalonians chapter two. I'm going to try to do these uh, in some order for you. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Um, we come to a statement that Paul in verse three says, "Let no one deceive you uh, by any means." For that day, referring to the day of the Lord, and this is a broad statement. I don't think it's just referring to the second coming of Christ, but to the entire uh, event from rapture through millennial kingdom, um, referring to the day of the Lord. I think it's a broader term than many, uh, many think it's just his judgment or just that. But he says, don't let anyone by any means deceive you that that day will come unless we have two things. The falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. We're going to deal with that in a few weeks. The son of perdition. We're going to deal with that later. But we're really going to look at that first one. This falling away. And the word there is the word apostasy. Um, it's the Greek word for apostasy. And that's apostasy. And so when we find this, um, there's this apostasy. And the apostasy isn't just the falling away of men away from God. But of those who once followed after God falling away from that commitment. Or from that walk. And we find this great falling away. It is an identifiable thing that Paul says, you will know that this is going on when it's happening. And again, it's not that the falling away is just on the very brink of God's judgment, but this is what you're going to see and you're going to be recognizing it maybe for an entire generation before Christ's actual judgment on the church occurs. There's going to be this falling away. And when you see that happening, now you begin to consider, um, well, the Lord's coming is, is upon us. And so we're going to investigate this falling away, this apostasy that uh, Paul declares will happen before the coming of the day of the Lord. And so uh, let's go on to some other passages that describe a little further. Just turn a few pages. For me, just uh, one. And to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul again is speaking. We're going to pick up right away in verse 1. And it reads this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so Paul introduces this idea that, listen, men in the pastorate, which he's talking to Timothy, and those to whom you minister, because Timothy is told that you are supposed to instruct the brethren in these things, in verse 6. And so it's not just pastors, but the people are supposed to be taught this, that, listen, there's going to come a time when men will not want to hear the truth. Um, they will depart from the faith. They'll be depart from the genuine faith of Jesus Christ, of following Jesus Christ, and they will give heed to that. They will listen to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. And you might say, well, that's kind of the, the same. Um, that deceptive breath that those spirits, those, those entities that will be out there and seeking to deceive even the elect. Um, and that's kind of, a, and God's word even uses that term one point, deceive if possible even the elect. Uh, that there's going to be this movement within the people of God away from truth into error. And we think, well, that's, uh, you know, I should be able to obviously know it is deceptive even to the people of God. 
We get tricked into thinking that that is accurate and correct for various reasons. Um, because they mix in a lot of truth and uh, just splatter in a little error. Uh, my family and I were looking at a video last night and um, it was just a, a video. It didn't have the box or anything. It was just the tape. Um, and it said uh, City of Angels. And I was like, I don't know. What. And we were trying to guess what it was. And uh, I thought it was a cop movie and my daughter thought it was a girl movie and and uh we didn't know so we plug it in it's about angels and i'm like okay it's really about angels and they're trying to portray this and they came up with some interesting statements well we are different species than man which is really unique for hollywood because usually angels are always just dead people that come back and earn their wings and become angels which isn't accurate so i'm like oh that's at least they got that right you know i'm surprised and then they started discussing uh, free will and god's gift of that as uh, part of the image-bearing uh, man. I was, wow, and I even paused it. Like, did you hear what they just said? And they're like, have they been listening to you? Um, but then it deteriorated from there. And the whole thing was that God has kept something good from the angels. They can't feel, smell, taste, any of those physical things that we enjoy and that, it, that angels have the will and that angels long to be human. Um, which is very different than what God's Word says. What did angels long to be? God. They wanted to be God. Satan wanted to be like the Most High. Um, and, uh, and it's that whole idea that God isn't good, that He, is, that he uh, holds back from us, and unless you fall, then you'll never be able to experience all these wonderful things. And so, questioning the goodness. But here in the midst of this very horrible message was a smattering of truth of some statements that maybe go some whoever wrote this knew something of God's word and and was communicating it um, but it's that whole idea of the deceptiveness is deceptive even to us we need to be very careful that they're speaking lies they're hypocrites and that their own conscience they are, have no problem saying it and that's the worst kind of liars those are the liars you believe because they believe it themselves. Um, that, and, and they have no issue with it. They have no problem with it. Um, to them, it, it's, they have no conscience about it. And it says their conscience has been seared with a hard iron. Um, and those are the worst kinds of liars because they're the most believable. And so we have this warning that if you don't want to be a part of this group falling away, you have got to be alert to the lies that are being perpetrated, not out there in the world, but in church. That we need to be have our sensitivities, our discernment, our, our, our understanding of God's Word at height of level, um, for this is what's going to be introduced, is, is these lies. And among them, um, he lists two that were very prevalent really back then, the forbidding to marry and the command to abstain from foods, um, which we saw among the Gnostics and we see among the Judaizers, um, these kinds of things, and uh, they are not biblical whatsoever. We come then to Second Timothy. Turn another page or two. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Again, Paul speaking to Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure, they will not put up with sound doctrine. And doctrine is just teaching. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers 
and they will turn their ears away from the truth. That's a deliberate act. I don't like what you're saying. I don't want to hear that. And be turned aside to fables. That is a passive statement. They will be turned aside. And I believe this is an important part of the process. The pro- what sets us up to be patsies for these hypocritical liars? Well, it begins when we don't like the truth. It begins by us saying, I don't like that. It makes me feel bad. Why does it have to be that way? Why can't it be my way? Why should I have to do it? God? Why should there only be one way to heaven? I don't like that there's a hell. I can't explain that. And we turn from the truth. Once we start questioning the validity of God's truth, then we are perfect targets to be deceived. We will be, it says, that's that passive, we will, we, we will, they will be turned, uh, be turned aside to fables. And we start believing ridiculous things. Like, you know, there's golden tablets somewhere and, and some angel Moroni came down and one guy got to see them and no one else did. And, and there's this great big activity that went on in the Midwest of huge civilizations that we have no uh, archaeological evidence of. And, and we start thinking, oh, those, that story's nice. Or even bigger fables. We start being turned aside but it begins because we don't want to hear sound teaching. It offends our sensitivities. It offends our our ego. And we turn away from it. And then we are set up to be turned, passively be turned to fables. We are just led away. Dumb sheep. So what is the solution? Again, verse 5, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. And so that whole watchfulness, that because we know this is what's going to happen, uh, we need to be prepared and watchful. We should anticipate it. And as it happens around us, and again, this isn't just a day, an hour, a week, or even necessarily even a generation. But maybe for an extended period of time, 70, 80, even 100 years, that this is the flavor of Christianity that's out there is I only want to hear what pleases my sensitivities, my thinking. I want your teaching to conform to my beliefs. I don't want my beliefs to conform to God's word. I want to hear what I want to hear. Not what God wants me to know. I want you to affirm me. I don't want you to... um, Speak the truth. And it's according to what you want, your desires, according to what your itching ears want to hear. And apparently, according to this, there's going to be plenty of people that are lining up to tell you that kind of stuff so that they can heap up for themselves teachers. There's plenty of people around that they can put in their corner and say, but so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so says this. One more passage, then I'm going to do a little other things. And then second. Peter, Second Peter, chapter 3, 
And Second Peter chapter three is really an extensive passage that we're going to spend a little time in. Um, where do I want to start? Let's just read the whole chapter. Um, I think I'm going to take the time to do that. It's more important. If I have to take extra time tomorrow on the church, tomorrow, I wish. Next week on the church, I'll do that. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this thing, one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a, with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons are you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Aren't you glad Peter even had a hard time with it? All right which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. What a powerful message from Peter about what it will be like in the end times. That listen, this is what it's going to be like, and so you need to prepare yourself. Because this is what <coughs> is coming down the road, and we find it um, very much evidence around us, I think. I'm just trying to build all of the scripture, and then we're going to look at it uh, in those categories. Turn another page with me to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 18, 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. 
So we have this whole body of New Testament teaching that talks about apostasy, that it is going to happen. This falling away, this falling, this, first of all, it turn away from the truth. I don't want to hear that. The stopping up of your own ears saying, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. And then this raising up of teachers who will tell you what you want to hear. And I will contend with you, brethren, that we, this is not something new to this generation, but that this has been well advanced for beyond my lifetime. As I look back at the readings and the, and the fights that were going on, they were fights. They were, I mean, it was incredible. Some of the stuff going on, um, 70 years ago, 60 and 70 years ago, as liberalism was penetrating organization after organization, church after church. Um, and the, if you look back, if you ever get a chance to read the history of the GARBC that we are part of, that of fellowship, you go back into that history of that fight within the Northern Baptist Convention over the inerrancy of God's Word. This has been in the last hundred years that God's Word has come under attack like never before, not by the world, but by the church. We don't want it to mean that I have to obey everything in it. We don't want to acknowledge it as truth. And that's fundamentally what has been the battle that has broken out many of these fellowships of independent groups is over the truth. What is God's Word? Is it inerrant truth or is it not? And the first thing we find in this process of following away um, isn't just that we're all just dumb sheep leading up. It's that we begin by denying the truth. And that's been going on not just in your lifetime. I know some of you are right around there, like a hundred. But uh, it's been going on. You go back into, and by the way, the battle really hit, and and, and the, the around the fifties was really wasn't that the time period of the, of the separation of the Northern Baptist Convention, and and the same thing was going on in the South with the Southern Baptists and. Spinning out of them, you had the Conservative Baptist Association, they had the Missionary Baptist Association, you had, you had different groups coming out of those. But uh, that wasn't in and itself the fight. It really began earlier as these this teaching was penetrating our schools and were producing pastors who did not believe that God's Word was the truth. We are way beyond a generation of what Paul described as the apostasy. We do not acknowledge God's Word as absolute truth. The church has been in that condition. And I'm not talking about the, the Catholic church or the most liberal churches out there. I mean, they're so far down the road, I don't even know how to discuss them. I'm talking about conservative Baptist churches. Conservative Presbyterian churches. Conservative Bible churches. They were infiltrated by this a generation out of the 20s and 30s and, and 40s that came in and introduced a questioning of truth. Once that happened, apostasy came. Once God's Word is an absolute truth, then I'm a target for any error that comes down the pike. And that error can go... In, a multitude of directions because it's totally up to what you want to hear. 
We talked this morning about the tongues movement and you look at where it was born out of and it's born out of that same thing. God's Word isn't enough. I want this ecstatic experience. We need further revelation. God's Word isn't enough. And once we begin undermining that foundation of the church, apostasy is for sure upon us. And it doesn't surprise me that we're this far down the road, that we have homosexual pastors, that we have, that we have no moral standards at all. Why should we? We threw away the book 70 years ago. There was a run. There was still some that clung to it. I, I understand that. But the falling away has happened. This is something we're looking for. We're looking at, is it happening now? Um, wake up! As your entire life has been lived in the falling away period. Because what Paul describes is that falling away happened already. We have already denied the truth. And that liberalism fight within the church, which swept across our country, and not just here, by the way, because of the influence of American Christianity on the mission fields of the world, it swept the world. And we began introducing liberation theology, and, we, and, and, it, and it swept the, the third world particularly. It's just revamped Marxism, baptized Marxism is all it really was. Liberation theology, and it sounded great, and the Catholics jumped on, everybody jumped on liberation theology. Where did it come from? Denying the truth of God's Word 80 years ago. And so if the apostasy has been going on for 80 years, 70 years, where are we in terms of God's toleration? We have had men of God stand up for these past 80 years and says, this cannot be allowed. And I honor them. They have been the prophets of God to declare to us that if this doesn't, isn't changed in the church, there is no hope for the church. And they have been there. Many of them were slapped aside and then something started forming up in our schools and that, and it's starting to, and it started showing up in our Bible versions and it started to be, show up in your, uh, study Bibles and it was called textual criticism. Oh, what a horrific, demonic thing textual criticism is. There is not a single portion of Scripture that I know of that textual critics haven't discounted. As this probably didn't, wasn't part of the original writing and blah, blah, blah. blah. This is a later edition. This wasn't really written by Daniel. This wasn't really written. They have destroyed any confidence in God's Word. Because they don't want its truth. So don't think this is something recent that I'm looking at. It is something that I have lived with my entire life. My 50 years, this battle has been raging. And the church is losing it. Correction. The church lost it. In a larger sense back then. When school after school and church after church succumbed to that liberal doctrine that brought into question God's Word. So we are not 
in this recently. We're not looking around immediately. This has already occurred. This apostasy has happened. And I go back to Jeremiah, and, and let's go to Jeremiah 23. I might go a little bit long tonight. I'm, I, I, I got three other categories still to talk about. Um, let's go to Jeremiah 23. It's just too important. It's been too valuable to me to not share with you. And I don't think that's fair sometimes. You, you do realize you only get about 20% of my study. And uh, that's probably not very fair to you. Um, Jeremiah 23, kind of same thing that uh, was going on back then that we're dealing with now is this apostatic, apostatic teaching. And uh, verse 1 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And uh, thus says the Lord God, against the shepherds who feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings. I will gather my remnant. And I believe that that is a great picture of the rapture. God will gather his remnant. You have a responsibility to stand fast. And that starts by saying, I love the truth of God's word and I will adhere to it. And that, my friends, will guard you from most of the lies, if not all of them. But turn with, keep going. I could read a lot of this, but I want to jump ahead to... uh, Verse 11. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore their ways shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. I, and I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesy by Baal and cause my people Israel to err. I... Also, I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. I mean, not Jerusalem. Yep. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that, listen to this, no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like who? Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Wow. You mean God looks at His people in His holy city, Jerusalem? His prophets and priests are the ones under contention here. He says, you've led my people. They look more like Sodom and Gomorrah than the people of God. And brother, we're there. And we've been there. I don't wring my hands over homosexuals in the church, approving church approving of homosexuals, church after church, denomination after denomination. I don't wring my hands over that. That was just a given. Back when they abandoned God's Word. Somewhere around my teens and 20s, it was the whole thing of women in the ministry. And all these women flooding into the pastorate with total disregard of God's Word. Of course, we threw out the Bible. All bets are off. Anything goes. Divorce? No biggie. Adultery? Immorality? No problem. And washed away was church discipline. Unheard of. And all we hear here now is, don't judge me. You don't have the right to judge me. And so, I say, okay. You want God to judge you instead? Good luck with that. So we're well down this line. And here, it wasn't the 
the people out there. It wasn't the world. It was prophets and priests. And today it's pastors and teachers in our churches where the greatest sins are occurring because 60, 70 years ago, we rejected God's Word as absolute truth. And now we are reaping its rewards. And so everything that we come across from here on out, all these other categories that I'm not going to get to tonight, of the sins of Israel, of the sins of Judah, of the sins of worldliness upon the church, that are coming into the church, that we're going to look at again First Timothy and some other passages that I skipped earlier on, um, are all built upon this one sin, which is the apostasy. And don't think it's just happening now and that it's just going to occur right at the end. Okay, a hundred years from judgment is right at the end. Okay, in God's plan. And the fact that it has occurred that far away, that the very process that Paul said would happen has that far away, should tell us something that we are so close to God's judgment on His people that we can't hardly refer to it as a genera- within a, a generation away. We, it's almost inappropriate to talk about it being years away. It can't be very much longer that God finally is going to judge what He already condemned 70 and 80 years ago. This is His pattern. He gives us that period of time to fill up. But He was really full back then. He he didn't like it back then. But He's given us this time to dig our own graves, so to speak. We were dead to Him back then. Now we've just dug ourselves in deeper And it's no surprise. I am not surprised at the extent of false teaching in the church. I'm not surprised that when I encounter even men in the pastorate, my friends, that they aren't thinking biblically because we stopped doing that a long, long time ago. Before I was even alive. We started believing textual critics. We started believing our own intuition. We started believing culture. We started looking around and saying the marketing people are the geniuses. We started believing technology. We stopped believing this. We would rather listen to the financial bankers about how to handle finances in the church than God's Word. The sin is just going to go rampant because the apostasy is that far. We are not fresh to this. We are wallowing in it up to our eyeballs. And so this is nothing new. And so next week when we talk about the prayer of Jabez, when we talk about the health, wealth, gospel, when we talk about self-determination, when we talk about Moral decay all next week. It's all built out of apostasy. Because once you can pick and choose what you like or don't like out of God's Word, it's over. This is what the church will look like in the end. And lo and behold, it does. I have been frustrated for 
a dozen years of ministry here, why aren't we growing? Why aren't we just busting our seams out? There have been several times I got home and I look at my wife and I said, I can't preach any better than that. I just can't do it. And then God, by His grace, does it. But it's a realization no one wants to hear the truth. Because a long time ago we threw out the Bible and said, your sensitivities are more important than God's truth. Your belief systems trump God's Word. Your culture has preference over God's culture. This is nothing new. The falling away is not happening or about to happen or we're on the brink of it. We are deep into it, so far into it that I have to contend Christ's coming must be soon. Extremely soon. For I find nowhere in God's Word that He tolerated it longer. The longest period I found was 100 years. The shortest was the Assyrians, which was a direct boast against God. But that was among um, the nations. We're going to talk about God's patience with them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But among His people, both Judah and Israel, it was about 70 to 80 years. God gave them 70 to 80 more years after that acme of sin that God gave them a chance to hear prophets and they didn't want to hear them. They wanted to kill them. They wanted to ignore them. They wanted to silence them. And we are at that juncture of that 70-year period that the apostasy has happened. And one of the things I've been instructed with is to understand remnant theology. That my responsibility is to minister to a remnant. To help you endure. To protect you from lies. And to not fall into this hypocrisy that false teachers are. That I maintain a sensitivity myself to God's Word. That I have to conform myself and my teaching to its truth. Whether I like it or not, whether it's countercultural or not, no matter what, no matter if it, if people want to question my, my patriotism, I don't care. This book defines my living. And when that is a reality, I, <laughs> then I am safe. I am safe from falling away. I am safe from the apostasy. I'm safe from the lies. And I'm safe from becoming a liar and leading others into error. When I myself am accountable to this truth. And I let it fashion my thinking instead of bringing my thinking to it. And brethren, it's not happening in many quarters and it hasn't been for some time. 
And I continue to see my friends, my classmates from seminary, from college, some who have completely denied their Savior, some that have gone off into freakish teaching that must be the doctrine of demons, some that are just simply complacent. And some that are just engaging intellectually with no passion for truth. I found that I have more pleasure being isolated from them and being in fellowship with my Bible. I've come to the point that I can't hardly read much of their writing. The foundation is vacant. Lip service is hypocrisy. Either I must conform my life, my ministry, and my thoughts to His truth, or I am in danger of the great apostasy that is, not that will be. And so, brethren, we pray hard, we stand fast, we endure, because we commit ourselves to sound teaching. And sound teaching means if it ain't in the book, I don't want to hear it. And if it is in the book, I must follow it. And that's what church is for. As we said this morning, that we be edified, that we be exhorted, that we be encouraged. That's what we ought to be doing because we are in the throes of the great apostasy. It has come. It's not is going to come. It's not uh, just starting. It has been. And it's for a sufficient time for God to judge it even today. I'm going to take next week to go through these and it'll be a brief sermon next week because <laughs> that's probably not true. I have a whole week to expand these now. <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, But we're going to talk about covetousness as idolatry and how it's coming to the church and being taught in the church. And there's so many ways that it is, and it's not recent. It's not, there are some recent examples, but the examples today are so horrible that that, the extent to which that they have deteriorated bespeaks the fact that we are a generation into this apostasy. That's the only way it could have gotten this bad is for it to have been extant for that long. So it's not going bad fast. It has been going bad the entirety of my life on this earth. Not just my ministry, but my whole life 
and longer. In fact, I don't know if there's anyone even in this room who was alive prior to the apostasy happening. That swept not just our country, but globally of Christianity. We're going to look at it a little bit more next week. Um, but just a real challenge. Pray for me. Pray for one another. And brethren, I tell my teens this every week, and it breaks my heart that I have to do that, and they're not listening. Um, spending time in this book every day is the most important thing in your life. It's more important than your children. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your homework. It's more important than playing. It's more important than your entertainment. You've got to know this book. And if it only gets dusted off once or twice a week, it's not enough. You are rejecting it by ignoring it. You've got to be into this book. I have to be in this book. And I have to not just get into it looking for snippets that I like, but I have to get into it with an honesty and a humility that says, I want to please God, and I have to know what it is that pleases and displeases Him. And guess what? It's not based upon your opinion. I don't care what you think displeases or pleases God. I have it written down for me. You don't know this book. If you're not in it regularly, you are setting yourself up to participate in the falling away. I love the word of life philosophy. Read your Bible every day. But I'm disturbed. how few take it to heart. Not only among our children and teens, but our adults.